I'm reading from John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. I don't know uh, if you've ever been caught up in a crowd, the energy and the power of a crowd. In 2016, Patty and I and the kids, we went down to Boston for the Women's March. It was supposed to have about 200,000 people, which is big enough, but they estimated 400 people, 400,000 people were there. And you really couldn't see beyond maybe 100 people in any direction. And it was, you felt the power of the crowd. You felt the energy of the crowd. You felt the emotion of the crowd. And it was a little bit scary, I'll be honest with you. You didn't feel completely in control. The crowd seemed to have an emotion and a a sense of itself. Now, luckily for us, that crowd was a very peaceful crowd that day. But there are plenty of crowds which have not gone that way. I mean, if you remember the George Floyd protests in Seattle were a small part of that crowd expressing their First Amendment right, broke away and and moved away from what was legal and and participated in looting and vandalism and arson. And if you remember, of course, January 6th, again, there was a crowd meeting on the uh, at on the, the the grass down in D.C., again, expressing their uh, their First Amendment rights, and, and that turned into the storming of the Capitol. So we, we have this sense that crowds have or perhaps find agendas and move in directions that can be unexpected, certainly for people in those crowds. And when we look at Palm Sunday, when we look at Jerusalem, when we look at what's going on in this week in history, looking back 2,000 years, we have this idea of waving palm leaves and people singing Hosanna. We celebrate Jesus's triumphal entry, but we do it like it's a nativity play, as if Palm Sunday is a sweet moment in history. I need to tell you that that is an incredibly sanitized view of Palm Sunday. Now, Jerusalem celebrated the Passover every early spring. It's the big main Jewish holiday. It was based on the Exodus, where the the Hebrews, before they became the Israelites, uh, they left Egypt. They got out of the slavery in Egypt and moved into the wilderness and eventually uh, across and settled in, uh, in the Promised Land. 
But the Passover feast re uh, refers to the evening when everybody who was a Hebrew, who uh, sacrificed a lamb, took the blood of that lamb and painted it on the door of their house. And anyone whose lamb blood was on the door was passed over by the angel of death, the 10th plague that hit Egypt. Now, if you weren't passed over by the angel of death, the youngest born, the eldest born male in the family was, was killed. And that symbolized the line of the family was cut off. The important idea of handing on the family traditions came to an end. So this is what the Passover celebration meant for for Israel and what was going on in Jerusalem. It was the final freedom from slavery in Egypt that they were celebrating. This is what the Passover feast was about. And in Jesus's time, Jerusalem is a seething city during Pass Passover. It's overflowing with pilgrims from across the Roman world. I need you to think of something like Times Square on New Year's Eve going on for at least a week long of celebrations. And Jer Jerusalem is a hotbed of revolutionary expectation. Zealots and Pharisees and Romans are all on edge. The energy of all these different crowds is, is overflowing. It, it's surging. There's a tension and an anxiety and a stress. Now, in our passage we look that we read today, there are two crowds specifically mentioned who are coming and responding to Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. And we'll look at them both and how they see Jesus as king. And then we'll look what Jesus has to say about his own kingship. Now, the first of the crowds is the one mentioned in 12 to 13. And this is the palm branch waving festival crowd, which I'm going to abbreviate to the zealot crowd. And then the second one we're going to look at is the we saw Lazarus raised from the dead crowd. And that's in verses 17 and 18. We'll call that the Lazarus crowd. So let's jump into each of those two crowds. First of all, the palm branch waving festival or zealot crowd. Let me read you verses 12 and 13 again. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, for the Jews, as we mentioned before, Passover is much more than just a religious ceremony. It was also the celebration of liberation from Egyptian bondage, slavery. And by extension, it was the hope of liberation from Roman bondage. So, at Passover, there's this nationalistic, hopeful sentiment running right through the crowd. There were plenty of Jews who had claimed to be messiahs, and often they would try to cause riots during the Passover. And in fact, the Romans brought in extra troops and had permission to shed blood to keep the peace. And zealots were a Jewish sect opposed to the pagan or polytheistic or the multi-god worship of the Romans. Now, despite that the, 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 these zealots, and I, I'm not saying that everybody in this palm branch waving feast crowd 
were zealots, but there was definitely this nationalistic undertone going through this crowd. And the zealots themselves were a Jewish sect opposed, as I said, to the pagan or multi-theistic uh, gods of Rome. And they despised any Jews who sought peace or conciliation with Roman authorities. They sort of first appeared in around AD 6 in a riot against the census. And then if you're, many of you may be familiar with this uh, ongoing dramatization of the life of Christ called the Chosen. And in it, you'll see these dagger men or Sakari who were, were zealots, who would go up and if they saw people, if they saw Pharisees or Sadducees or, or people conspiring with the Romans, they would go up and they would knife them and kill them. So um, the zealots were responsible for, for riots in AD 66 and AD 73, uh, and they would prefer to commit suicide than surrender. Now, when you hear about a festival crowd shouting Hosanna, Hosanna is also a slogan of the ultra-nationalistic zealots. And, and of course it means save us, but it also has the implications of give us freedom and perhaps reading a little bit more, get rid of these Romans. <coughs> Excuse me. Now the festival crowd were waving palm branches. And of course we have all these notions that palm branches are um, a symbol of peace and love, but that's actually not true. The palm branch was the symbol that had once been placed on Jewish coins when the Jewish nation was free. It was a nationalistic symbol before they had to put the head of Caesar on the, the coin. It's a symbol of Jewish nationalism, an expression of the people's desire for political freedom. So here you have a crowd that's gone out to meet Jesus, a festival crowd, a huge festival crowd. They're waving palm branches and singing hosannas with a clear desire for an end to Roman oppression. And we look at that and we think, what's going on there? What, what's happening? How did they get it so wrong? But I want us to take a step back, in fact, and really ask ourselves, were they really that far wrong? In the USA today, in 2020, this seems like a huge miss. And, and we know that Jesus did not enter into Jerusalem for this type of coronation. But is, it, is this expectation really a miss? Isn't this overthrow of oppression? Isn't this what we want in Afghanistan or Ukraine or North Korea or Iran or parts of Nigeria? Remember in Luke, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 as the foundation, as the explanation for his ministry. I'll read it to you. <coughs> Excuse me. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and that includes the political prisoners, and to recover, and the recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isn't Jesus the real hope for liberation, for the end of oppression? And the answer is yes, yes, he is. The problem here is not the desire or the expectation that Jesus will end oppression. The king is coming. And this must mean liberation and freedom from oppression. So we'll come back to what's going on with this crowd a little later. Let's jump on to the next crowd. The, we saw Lazarus raised from the dead crowd, or the Lazarus crowd. And that's in verses 17 and 18. And again, I'll read that to you. 
Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. (coughs) Now the raising of Lazarus. A crowd who had been with Lazarus when he was raised from the dead saw this as a sign that even death is subject to Jesus' authority. And in fact, we know all of Jesus' miracles were signposts to Jesus and foretastes of his coming kingdom. And the reaction people had to these miracles demonstrates this. There were healing miracles, which demonstrated Jesus' power over sickness. There were exorcism miracles, demonstrating Jesus' power over, over evil spirits. Then there are the nature miracles. I I personally like these the best. Remember the calming of the storm in Mark 4? They're terrified of this storm, and then Jesus, the disciples, and then Jesus calms the storm and says, do not be afraid. And in fact, they're more terrified when they see what Jesus has done, and they ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey. And I, I don't know if you've ever noticed in John 6, In verses 14 and 15, the crowd's response to the feeding of the 5,000, that wonderful miracle where Jesus multiplied the food. After the, and I'm quoting now from 14 and 15 in chapter 6 of John, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountains by himself. Now, all of these miracles are a sign of Jesus' power over disease, demons, nature. But the raising of Lazarus was the most significant sign of all. Death. Death is the most democratic institution of them all. They say death and taxes, but not everybody pays taxes. Everybody dies. Here is someone who not only has the authority over disease, demons, and nature, he has the authority over death. And this crowd, this Lazarus crowd that have come out, they want to see the kingdom of Je- the kingdom that Jesus has foretasted, fully ushered in. They've come to see the miracle worker, the one who acts with all authority. Now, again, with 2020 hindsight, we realize that Jesus is not entering Jerusalem to be coronated as this crowd expects either. But again, are their expectations wrong? Don't we need someone to heal diseases, the blind and the lame, someone to stop nature from causing havoc and destruction, someone to keep order in the spiritual and physical realms, someone to undo the curse of death. This is the king that the Lazarus crowd expected. And isn't Jesus the ultimate hope for eradicating disease, physical disability, natural disaster and death? Again, the problem here is not the expectation of Jesus' kingdom or kingship. The king is coming, and this must mean an end to disease, disability, natural disaster, and death. (coughs) So what sort of king is Jesus? In 2022, in our comfortable, sanitized world, it's easy for us to miss or to feel the deep need or, or, or the, the, the real strong pull to the, 
to the physical, political, social, and medical brokenness, the need for the kingdom to break in. But both the zealot-like crowd and the Lazarus crowd knew their need for Jesus and the promises of his kingdom. And yet a week later, they were calling out crucify him. They had given up on him as king. Why? Well, it wasn't their understanding of the promises of the kingdom that were off. It was their understanding of his role as king. In verses 14 to 16, we see that Jesus defines his role as king here very intentionally, very, very intentionally. Let me read you verses 14 to 16. Excuse me. <coughs> Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now I'll read you the last line here too. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had to be done to him. Now, Jesus had been to Jerusalem several times to celebrate the, the Passover, three previous pilgrim festivals, and this is his final entry into Jerusalem, and it has a special meaning. He is solemnly entering as a humble king of peace. You see, a donkey is not the usual traveling mechanism for a victorious king. Kings entered cities claiming victory, riding on big, powerful white horses. A king entering the city on a donkey symbolized one coming humbly and in peace, looking for reconciliation. Now, a donkey, this donkey that Jesus rode, it was pre-planned. It was staged, managed by Jesus. If you read the accounts and all of the Gospels, he goes to a lot of trouble to get this donkey, to get this donkey to where he is so that he can ride it into the city. <coughs> and coming on a donkey... It's a direct counterstatement to zealots, to the zealot crowd's immediate expectation that he's going to end oppression. You see, Jesus won't end it through violent uprising. Jesus has made a deliberate choice to come in humble weakness. And coming on a donkey is a direct counterstatement to the Lazarus crowd's immediate expe expectation of victory over illness, nature, and death. Jesus has made a deliberate choice to come in humble weakness. But it's more than just humble weakness. You see, Jesus is traveling by way of Bethpage. Now, this is the route that the Paschal lamb is brought to Jerusalem. You're asking, what's the Paschal lamb? This lamb was brought from Bethpage and led to the Temple Mount. It's the lamb that is officially sacrificed. It's the, it's the official Passover lamb that's slaughtered on the evening of Passover, that Israel slaughtered on the evening of Passover. And then, of course, they have their own lambs, which they eat on the first night of the holiday with herbs and matzo. And if you're interested in that uh, idea or, or what that Passover feast is all about, I encourage you to come to North Point's Passover supper on Thursday. Now, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to bring peace between God and people by becoming the ultimate and final Paschal or 
Passover lamb, a sacrifice offered up on the cross. Now, this is going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem for the zealot crowd, zealot leaders who are sacrificed to fail. And this is going to be a problem for the Lazarus crowd. Surely if Jesus has the power over everything, he could have saved himself. It's confusing, as we read, even for the disciples. They don't get it. Now, here we're confronted with the paradox of the cross. You see, to bring true crop, to bring true peace, it is not ultimately the oppressors or the demons or illness or disabilities or the ravages of nature or even death that need to be dealt with. These are symptoms of a world not reconciled to God. It is the justice of God that needs satisfying. It is the wrath of God at our rebellion that needs to be dealt with. Now, if Jesus had come into Jerusalem on a white horse, as the zealot crowd wanted, not only would the Roman oppressors have been overthrown and destroyed, so would the zealot-like crowd. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If Jesus had come into Jerusalem on a white horse, as the Lazarus crowd had wanted, not only would illness and disability and demons and natural disasters and death have been destroyed, so would the Lazarus crowd. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Prince of Peace rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to be the Paschal Lamb. The kingdom is made possible by the cross. This is what brings peace between people and God. And in this sense, Jesus is still riding the donkey, still offering reconciliation between people and God. But what about the hopes of the zealot crowd and the Lazarus crowd? People and God are reconciled, but the fullness of the kingdom is not yet here. What about oppression and disease and death? Soon, Jesus will dismount the donkey and ride the white horse of victory that we see in Revelation. Those who are reconciled by the crucifixion of the king that rode the donkey, we'll see this victorious king come in power and might and authority to fully destroy oppression and illness and disability and natural disaster and death. And if we are washed in the blood of the Paschal Lamb, the crucified Christ, we will survive. We will be able to stand before the king on his white horse and enter into the fullness of the new kingdom with him. Let's pray. <coughs> Excuse me. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do pray for hearts that can see <coughs> the sacrifice that you made to reconcile us to you. And all the brokenness that we call upon you to fix ultimately comes from an unreconciled relationship between creatures and God. Lord, we ask for your blessing as we enter into this Passion Week that we can focus on your work and what you've done. Amen.